And uh, with that in mind, let's talk to Jesus right now. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity we have to open up your word now and to defend it and to love it and to apply it to our lives. What a great privilege that is. And I pray, God, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to help us be more like you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in a series entitled Questions by Jesus, looking at the questions that Jesus asked. Jesus was a great question asker. And the one that we've been looking at for the last three weeks, actually, is this one. What is written in the law? You might remember in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke chapter 10. Jesus is confronted by a lawyer. And the lawyer asks him the most important question of life. He says this, behold, verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Biggest question of life, right? Because if there's one thing we all have in common, we will die, right? Unless the Lord comes back before then, we're going to die. And after that, how do I get eternal life? Jesus could have answered the question and given his opinion. He's God in flesh, right? He knows the answer. But he models for us what we should do when we face the big questions of life. He says this, What is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. See, here at Riverview Church, and I hope you believe this with all your heart, that when we face the major questions of life, we turn to God's word. How do I do marriage? Turn to God's word. How do I do my private life? Turn to God's word. How do I live for God? Turn to God's word. What do I do when someone wrongs me? Turn to God's word. It will give you the answer to all of those questions of life. Sadly, though, all around us, people are attacking the Bible, undermining it, saying things about it that aren't true. So for the past two weeks, and now three, I want to give you ammunition in your tool belt to be able to defend God's Word so that people don't think that Christians believe the Word of God in spite of all the evidence against it, which is exactly the opposite of reality. I think of that when I think of creation. All the evidence for a designer that's out there if, if you don't believe that, go to Descent from Darwin. I was just on there this past week. DescentFromDarwin.org, a website dedicated. We doubt the ability of, of Darwin's theory to account for the complexity of life that we see today on, on the planet. More study needs to be done, basically is what the website says. And over 1,250 professors, uh, scientists from Harvard, Yale, Duke, all the major have signed on to this website. Why? Because the evidence isn't there for atheistic evolution. It is there for this amazing God that we serve. The evidence isn't there to undermine the Bible. It is there to believe the Bible. It's a huge leap of faith to say the Bible is full of errors and not from God, which is totally contrary to this. It's a small step of faith when you know the evidence to believe that the Bible that you hold in your hand was produced by the God that loved you all the way to the cross. Like it, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We just so we're in uh, Luke chapter 10. Now go to the right, John, Acts chapter 17. Paul encounters the Bereans. 
And as you know, wherever Paul went to plant a church, there were those that followed him to disrupt the crowd against him. Now you might think, hey, you know what? I'm talking to people about God and people are attacking me. I'm out of the will of God. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. No, not at all. Wherever Paul went, people attacked him. It didn't mean he was out of the will of God. It just meant that when you talk about Jesus, there will be opposition. There will be people against it. Why? Because there are opposing forces to building God's kingdom. And yet we're to stand. We're to believe the word of God. That's what I love about these Berean Christians. Look what it says in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why did they send them away by night? Because they knew if they send them out during the day, there would be those that would follow them to Berea and disrupt people against them. So they go to Berea at night. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews here, I love how the Bible says this, very honestly, right? These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They received the word with all what? Eagerness. See, God loves that attitude in us. He loves us to have a teachable heart. You know, my kids, I love when they're teachable, right? But God even more so because he's the perfect teacher with all the perfect answers. Unlike me, I am so imperfect. But our Heavenly Father has the perfect plan for our lives. That was a great place for an amen, by the way. Let's say that again. God has the perfect plan for our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. He does. You have to believe that. Nothing else like it. No other plan out there backed up by Jesus' death and resurrection. See, that's what gives his message authority. That's why when he loves the word of God, we love the word of God. Because his message has authority. But the Bereans received it with all eagerness. What else did they do? Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, I, I never want you to just take what I say and necessarily believe it. I would love for you to go back and say, well, Pastor Mel said this. Let me find some more verses that back this up. And what about this passage over here? Does that back up what Pastor Mel said? Let me study the Word of God to make sure these things are so. They had a love for the Word of God. We ought to be people of the Word, students of the Word. They were examining the Scriptures daily. Was it yearly, monthly? No, daily, right? To see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. The whole crowd of people believed. What happened? When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. What did they do? Agitating and stirring up the crowds. Hey, if you're standing up for the word of God and its truth, there will be people who will be agitated. There will be people who will be stirred up. Keep going. Keep believing. The facts are there to support the amazing word of God. Well, let me review a little bit so we have this in our tool belt because I want you to leave here having answers when people say, hey, do you believe the word of God? You say, yes, I do. And then they ask, why? And we talked about this, right? Some people have said to me, in fact, uh, a couple weeks ago in the first service, somebody yelled out, because I believe. Well, there are other religions where people believe as well. Does that make their religious writings equally valid to that of God's word? Well, I have faith. Well, so do other religions. But if you look at the evidence behind the word of God, there will always be a step of faith to accept the word of God as the word of God. But it's a small step of faith because the evidence is so 
powerful. That's what distinguishes the word of God from every other religious writing, sacred writing on the planet. Remember, uh, people have said to me, well, how could the disciples ever remember what Jesus said? They wrote their gospels 30, 40 years after Jesus died. Maybe Mark a little earlier than that. How could they remember? What's the verse that talks about that? Anybody remember what it is? Yeah, John chapter uh, 14, where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I have said to you. Bring it all to your remembrance. This promise of inspiration. See, Jesus, and we talked about this, let's review it, had total confidence in the Word of God. Every dot, every smallest letter will not pass away, Jesus said, until all... If Jesus has that kind of confidence about the Old Testament, so should we. But we also understand the apostles had total confidence in their writings being Scripture as well. Peter lists Paul's apostles, uh, epistles, his letters, as equal to the Scriptures of the Old Testament. They had this sense of being carried along by God as they wrote. In fact, that's what the promise is there in John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. They had divine help. So if Jesus had a high opinion of the Word of God, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so should we. Let's review again. The evidence supports having total confidence in the Word of God on our part that we should have total confidence in the Word of God. The Bible with its 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written over 1,600 years, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents by 40 different authors, yet the message is consistent throughout. Somebody asks you, what is that message? The message is this, God is pursuing us. Don't you love that? God's not up in heaven saying, man, these humans have messed it up so badly. I'm leaving them alone. I'm getting out of town. He doesn't say that. We did mess it up so badly. But all throughout the Old Testament, this thread of prophecy, he's coming. The Messiah is coming. The one who will answer our sin problem is coming. Every animal that was ever sacrificed points to Jesus coming, points to the ultimate Lamb of God who will take away our sins. All of that message throughout all 66 books read, uh, written over 1,600 years in three different languages on three different continents by 40 different authors is consistent throughout. Just that alone should tell you, wow, this book is of divine origin. No other book like it. If you're like me, and I said this last week, I've read books where authors have contradicted themselves in their own one book. They contradict themselves. And they have to do revisions and redactions and new printings, the fifth edition of the book, because they're correcting their errors. Not so with the Bible. Now, if somebody says to you, why do you believe the Bible? I, I want you to remember these three letters, M-A-P. You need a map, right? M-A-P. We talked about the manuscript evidence. Let's review that quickly. The manuscript of, uh, of the Bible, the copies. Every time you hear the word manuscript, think copies. The copies of the Bible miraculously preserved. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, 850 scrolls that dated back to 150 B.C. 
One of those 850 scrolls was a copy of the book of Isaiah that dated to 150 B.C. The oldest copy before that was a copy of Isaiah dating 950 A.D. And skeptics were like, man, just wait till we see the massive difference between the copy in 950 and the copy from 150 B.C. That's over a thousand years. What they found virtually identical. The book and the copies were identical. It highlighted for everyone the amazing care, the amazing time that people took to copy the word of God accurately over time. Even our Greek New Testament, our Greek New Testament text is incredibly accurate to the original Greek. Some scholars, I I took a lower number, 98.33% accuracy. I've read others who put it at 99, 99 99.5% accuracy. And I showed you some uh, examples of what manuscript differences would be like. Remember I did that? Christ Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Then the the next manuscript said Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Then the next one said Christ Jesus. And comparing the manuscripts, the copies, even though there might be uh, slight variations in word order, the message still the same, we can determine what the original said by evaluating all the copies that we have. One half percent that is uncertain is really about word order and spelling no doctrine no theological truth is threatened by this uncertainty it's just word order and spelling and as these copies of the books of the new testament were taken all around the mediterranean world because every church wanted a copy of the gospel of mark every church wanted a copy of the gospel of john So copies were made and sent around. And now they've been gathered by scholars together. And by comparing all those thousands of copies, they have incredible certainty about what the Bible says. The New Testament has 5,600, 5,600 supporting Greek manuscripts. Over 20,000 manuscripts in other languages of the New Testament. The New Testament books were completed at 90 AD. The Rylands fragment of the Gospel of John, sometime after 100 AD. A 10, maybe 15 year gap at the most. Remember I showed you Aristotle's works? Nine manuscripts. The oldest manuscript that we have of Aristotle's works. 1,400 years after Aristotle lived. A 1,400 year gap. Yet no one questions the accuracy of Aristotle's works. It's amazing how accurate the Bible is. That's why scholars like Dr. Kenyon, former director of the British Museum, concluded the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. There's no doubt anymore that what we have here in our hands is what was written by the writers of the New Testament. We talked about the Iliad that has 643 manuscripts. This is a work of antiquity that's closest to the New Testament in manuscript evidence with only 643 manuscripts. It has 15,000 lines in it, 7,640 words in question, 5% questionability. We talked about the New Testament, considered sacred, one half percent questionability. just want to review this for you so you have it, so you know it. 
When people say to you, well, Mel, the Bible's been changed. I hear this so much, it makes me sick. The Bible's been changed. It's been altered over time. Look at all the transversions you have. They're all different. It's been changed. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Anyone who says that has zero understanding of the time and effort Textual criticism goes to make sure that we have an accurate text comparing these 5,600 Greek manuscripts and 20,000 other manuscripts to make sure that the words we have in the Greek are exactly what the writers intended for us to have. See, the original writers wrote, we take the 27,000 manuscripts that we have, 6,000 in the Greek, more than 6,000, and uh, uh, or almost 6,000, and then the 20,000 20, in other languages, add them all together, comes to 27,000 manuscripts that we have. That gives us incredible accuracy for the Greek New Testament. I have one sitting on my desk, Greek New Testament of all 27 books. And from that, we talked about this, but you need to know this, and I want to say it again. Every version, every translation that is out there, all the reputable ones, the main ones that are sold at bookstores, the ones that we have here in the room today, all come directly from the Greek New Testament, which is incredibly accurate. The King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version, the New International Version, the version that I preach from, the English Standard Version, written or translated about... 15, 20 years ago. That comes directly out of the Greek New Testament. The only difference is they're translating it into more modern day English that's more readable and understandable because language over time changes. Just look at the, new King, uh, the King James Version. You realize how much the English language has changed since then. So please don't let anyone say to you, the Bible has been changed or altered. I hear that so much, and it couldn't be further from the truth. There's no possible way people can go back and change the 27,000 manuscripts that exist that give supporting evidence for the Greek New Testament that we have. And then all of these scholars coming together as groups, making translations from the Greek to the English, discussing every verse to make sure every word is accurate. When you take, for example, the English Standard Version and a Greek New Testament side by side and look at them, you can see, wow, that word's there, that word's there. That, this is like word for word. It's like an interlinear New Testament. That's how accurate it is. And that's why I love preaching from Bibles like the ESV, because if the Bible is truly inspired, then I want to read uh, the English version that's as close to the original as possible. See, and as we get into week three, I want you to be equipped to stand for the miracle of God's word. Let me talk a little bit about the Council of Nicaea. I'm often questioned about this, and you will be too. People say to me, at the Council of Nicaea, first of all, they totally misrepresent what happened at the Council of Nicaea. Books were taken out of the New Testament that shouldn't have been taken out. They, they cut out all the books that should have been in there. It's not true. That's absolutely not true. The Council of Nicaea happened in 325. Right there, you see it on the map. That's where it was. 318 representatives from the early church from five different areas came. And what they addressed more than anything was false doctrine entering the church. An example, we talked about it last week, Arianism. 
presenting Christ as a created being. Now, we all know what happens because there are groups out there. There are false teaching groups out there, cults out there. Cults are basically defined as anyone who claims to be Christian but denies the core teachings of the faith. And there are groups out there that claim to be Christian but deny the core teachings of God's word, like saying that Jesus was created. That's what Arianism taught. And the early church said, we got to stop this. Just like Jesus said, there are wolves in sheep's clothing. We can't let this happen. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything that was created, everything that was made, was made by Jesus. So if Jesus was made, then the Bible's in error. Because it clearly says Jesus was not made. But time after time, you hear people diminishing Jesus. What happens when that happens? It becomes a work salvation. If Jesus is just like you and me, then he's certainly not worthy to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Maybe if he lived the perfect life, he could die on the cross for the sins of one. But see, because Jesus is God in flesh, his life has infinite value. When he dies on the cross, he's worthy. That's the word that's used about Jesus again and again. He's worthy to take the sins of the whole world upon himself, yours and mine. And by faith in him, our sins are forgiven and we're adopted into God's family. That's why it's called good news. That's why it's good news. We need to stand up for what the Bible clearly says, but people attack it and want to change it. Another council that's important in those early days of the church was the Council of Carthage. That was in 397 AD in northern Africa. There they did confirm that these books that are widely accepted, the 27 books of the New Testament, that are widely accepted in the early church are the only books that should be in Scripture. There were these false writings appearing, and we mentioned this one, the Gospel of Thomas, for example appeared about 300 A.D., stating it was written by the disciple Thomas, who'd been dead for 150 years. He couldn't have written this book. But somehow people are beginning to say, well, we should include this in the Bible. No. Just like the rattlesnake I told you about? We don't want that rattlesnake crawling up into our house. We don't want that rattlesnake in our home. Right? We, we don't want books in the Word of God that shouldn't be there. The Council of Carthage only affirmed the books that had already had been widely accepted by the early church and kept out books that were not written by people who were eyewitnesses or with eyewitnesses of what happened with Jesus. So that's the, the council that we need to understand as well. Those two councils are important for us to know. Let's move on to archaeology. We've done the M, manuscripts. Now archaeology. Dr. Nelson Gluck, here he is pictured on Time magazine, one of the leading authorities of Israeli archaeology. He said this, because you will hear it. You will hear people say, archaeology has proven the Bible is an error again and again. That is absolutely not true. Nelson Gluck, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. No archaeological discovery has ever controverted or undermined, is another way to say that word, a biblical reference. None. Zero. We talked about the Pontius Pilate reference inscription that was found. 
People mocked the Bible because they would say no one ever existed named Pontius Pilate until an inscription was found that said Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Proving again the Bible to be accurate. All these other archaeological findings that we mentioned. Here's another scholar, Dr. William Albright. Notice one of the great archaeologists said this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of Old Testament tradition. Sir William Ramsey, one of the most skilled archaeologists of his day, he had rejected most of the written New Testament account. He was determined to prove the Bible to be filled with errors based on what he thought were contradictions. So this is what he did. He set out to prove Luke wrong, hoping to confirm the Bible was full of errors. He believed that the books of Luke and Acts, which are written by Luke, by the way, both books, were written about 150 AD. If that were true, then Luke could not have written them. That's what he believed. So he set out to prove his theory to be true. His archaeological journey took him to 32 countries, cities, and nine islands. After some 15 years of intensive study, he concluded this. Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Why? Because everywhere he went, there was confirmation of Luke's writings, the accuracy with which Luke wrote and the archaeological findings that he discovered and found supported everything Luke said. So if anyone says to you, archaeology has contradicted the Bible, they don't know what they're talking about. They're standing in contradiction to the greatest minds in archaeology in all of human history. Let's talk about the next letter, prophecies, the prophecies of the Bible. Here's some good things to know. When people say, well, why do you believe the Bible? I'll say manuscripts, archaeology, and prophecies. The prophecies of the Bible, amazingly accurate. To be 100% correct, now there are prophecies yet to be fulfilled about Christ's second coming, but about his first coming, the prophecies are without error. Every one of them came to pass. Now you might say, well, what are the odds of one person fulfilling all these prophecies? By the way, just to narrow it down, how many of you ever have had a prophecy about your birth? Anyone here had a prophecy made about your birth? Anyone? About where you're going to like grow up? About how you're going to die? So right away, that X's out a lot of people, right? No, very few people have ever claimed to have prophecies made about them 700, 800, 1,000 years before they were born. Well, these prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Christ, Jesus fulfilled. What are the odds of just fulfilling some of them? Most scholars will say there's 61 major prophecies made about the coming of the Messiah. If you just take 48 of them, not all of them, 48, one mathematician calculated that the odds of one person fulfilling that many prophecies like Jesus did is 1 times 10 to the 157th power. You might say, well, Mel, that sounds like a big number. How big is it? Believe me, if you had this many dollars, you'd be worth so much more than Jeff Bezos. So much more in Amazon. Here's the number. This is how big it is. The number of electrons in the entire known universe is 10 to the 79th power. The odds of one person fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies, 1 times 10 to the 157th power. 
Peter Stoner, here's a good one. I've used this quite a bit with folks. Peter Stoner, a mathematician. And I've shared it with you before. Let me share it again. You should try to remember this. Peter Stoner is his name, mathematician. He took just eight, eight prophecies. He determined that for one person to complete eight of those prophecies, one times 10 to the 17th power, that's a lot smaller number. How big is that number? Well, imagine, if you will, filling this room with silver dollars up to your knees. This whole room filled with silver dollars up to your knees. That would be a lot of silver dollars, amen? The church would be loaded if that was the case. We'd have a lot of money. Silver dollars up to your knees. And somebody marked one of those silver dollars with a red X. And you were blindfolded and told you have one pick to pick out the one silver dollar marked with a red X. What are the chances of you in this room picking that out? Pretty small, right? Pretty small. Peter Stoner didn't say that one times 10 to the 17th power is this room being filled with silver dollars up to your knees. I shared this with the FCA group the other day when my son leads the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group at Carlsbad High School. It's not this room being filled to your knees with silver dollars. It's the state of Texas being filled with silver dollars up to your knees. Same situation. One of those coins is marked with a red X and you have one pick to find it in the entire state of Texas. Virtually impossible. Can't be done. Just eight. And there are 61 major prophecies about Jesus. What are some of them? You can mention mention to people. One of them is this, the virgin birth. The virgin birth, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus is born, says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. There's actually a couple of prophecies in that verse, even about his name. That was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 25. What about where Jesus is born? Now, if we talked about how many people on the planet have been born in Bethlehem, you would pretty much X out 99.9999% of the human population because very few people have been born in Bethlehem. But the Bible's very clear. The Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, it says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That's a prophetic, poetic way of saying whose origins are from eternity. There's going to be a special person that's born in Bethlehem. Prophecy made 700 years before it happened. Here's another prophecy that will be preceded by a messenger was John the Baptist. That was made 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, fulfilled in John the Baptist and his life. The fact that Jesus would die on a cross and his side would be pierced. His legs weren't broken. That was another prophecy, that his bones would not be broken, which is what they were going to do to Jesus. They broke the legs of the other two that were hanging there next to Jesus to speed up their death because the Sabbath was about to start. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he'd already died. So instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side to prove that the blood and the water had already begun to separate. A prophecy that was made by Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one mourns for an only son. More crucifixion details were given in Psalm chapter 22. When you read this, you have to believe that was this written after crucifixion was invented? Because the death by crucifixion hadn't been invented when this psalmist wrote this prophecy in Psalm 22. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, which is exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the cross. They didn't want to tear Jesus one piece of clothing apart, so they cast lots for it, fulfilling what the psalmist had written hundreds of years earlier. But it's not just ancient events that verify Scripture's accuracy. I didn't have room to put this on your sheets. But even future events... Even modern-day news events were finding fulfillment from Scripture. For example, in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, that there is one coming, an antichrist, that will stand in the temple and claim to be God. The holy place is located in the temple. For 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives a detailed description of what the abomination of desolation is all about. It says this, the Antichrist will exalt himself and will be in the temple claiming to be God. But in the early 1900s, there was a problem with all these prophecies. Anybody know what the problem is? No Israel. There's no Israel. People were mocking the Bible. They were mocking the prophecies of the Bible. How can the Antichrist make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel when Israel does not exist? And knowing the state of affairs with the Arabs controlling the Middle East and their hatred for Jews, there's no way Israel will ever regather as a nation. It's absolutely impossible. And the Bible was mocked. Until what happened? In 1948, after a UN vote that gave Jews a portion of the Middle East land in ancient Israel, the nation of Israel, the state of of Israel was reborn on May 14, 1948. All of a sudden, people were jumping into their Bibles like, wait a minute, the, the nation's back? This has never happened before. There has never been a nation of antiquity that has ceased to exist and then come back into existence. Never happened before. But it happened with Israel in the most unlikely place in the Middle East. And you probably know about the wars that followed immediately the day after they declared themselves a nation. The Arabs attacked. They survived. The Six-Day War in 1967, you heard about that. Israel survived. One miracle after another. People are now looking at the Bible with a new excitement like the Bereans, right? New enthusiasm. What does the Bible say about Israel? What does it say about the Antichrist and the peace treaty he's going to make with Israel? We see it every day in the news how Israel is at the very center of world affairs. And by the way, another problem with the prophecies that exist today is that for the Antichrist to stand in the temple, there needs to be a what in Israel? A temple, exactly. Now, is there a motivation in Israel today to rebuild the temple? 
Absolutely there is. If you follow their elections, there are people who run on the platform of rebuilding the Jewish temple. And they want it done. There are rumors the stones have already been cut. There are rumors the furnishings for the temple have already been made. So when you hear about the temple being rebuilt, know that's another massive world event that confirms biblical prophecy and the amazing accuracy of the book that you hold in your hands. No other book is like it. Nothing even comes close to it. It's a small step of faith to believe that this Bible is divinely inspired, but a huge leap of faith to deny that God was not involved in the making of this book. And as I close today, I just want to remind you of this verse. It says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. What does God want to see in us that he's so approving of? A worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. May each of you love getting into God's word. You see it for what it is. And when people challenge you about your belief in the word of God, that you boldly say, and you don't? Let me tell you about the manuscripts and the archaeological evidence and the prophetic evidence and so much more. There's more if you research it, by the way, that supports this amazing book as being produced by God. Let's accurately handle this book and love studying it and come every Sunday with an eagerness to open up the Word of God. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer this morning. As your hearts are bowed, maybe you're sitting there going, you know, I haven't read the Word of God for so long. I need to make it part of my daily schedule. Like the Bereans, they examine the Scriptures daily. Maybe today is your day to say, you know what, I need to get the Word of God in my heart. I need to study it. I need to read it. I want to be able to defend it when people make unfair attacks about it, untrue attacks about it. And Lord, I pray for all of us that are here today that we would be a church that boldly proclaims that we follow your word unapologetically. We love the truth of it and how it changes our lives and how the Holy Spirit empowers it in our lives to make us more like you, Jesus. So I pray that as we leave this place, would have a love for your word, that we'd be bold about you, God, that we'd have a, a greater love for you, Jesus, and what you did for us on the cross. We commit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this chorus. So we have elders up front who love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. Please greet one another, love one another, and live this week all for him. God bless you. See you on the patio.